Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Beloved, this Sunday's Old Testament text from Genesis highlights what is traditionally known as the fall, the Bible's first temptation, an act of disobedience in the Garden of Eden. This popular conception of the Garden of Eden story includes many assumptions and has suffered from some serious misinterpretations, from blaming women for being the weaker sex to viewing the serpent as Satan, which is a serious anachronism and a later phenomenon that originated with the help of Persian influence. Another misinterpretation of this passage from Genesis regards the notion of original sin in the sense of the flawed nature inherited from the first parents of all human beings. But that is a much later interpretation of the Masoretic text itself. Consider that Genesis 3 is a way of perhaps describing the mystery of sin, not to explain its origin. A story about perhaps humanity, which is complex and paradoxical in nature. Ultimately, the story of Genesis 2 and 3 with its theme of human frailty is so fitting in the time of Lent and invites us to notice the compelling portrayal of God's grace amidst the depravity. A God who continues relentlessly to remain in relationship with God's creatures. So let us hear now, maybe with open ears and open minds, this beautiful story from Genesis chapter two, verses 15 through 17, in chapter 3, 1 through 7. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, "Ah, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, 
and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. This week on Ash Wednesday, we began our 40-day Lenten journey and the sermon series, Beauty for Ashes. Lent is a time in the Christian year, a holy season, when we intentionally enter into a time of discernment, reflection, and we examine our lives and our relationship with God and with one another. Lent is just as much a communal journey as it is an individual journey. Historically, in the early church, Lent was the time when those who were estranged from community were restored and welcomed back. You may have chosen to give something up this Lent or to take something on, or maybe you are just finding your way back. Wherever you are, Whatever you are here for during this season of Lent, there is an invitation available to all of us at any point along this journey to release the fears, the guilt, the stigma, the shame, and the secrets that have accumulated across time. And here's the good news. We don't even have to wait until Easter for God to make all things new or for the freedom and transformation that God offers. The sermon focus today is on trading our shame for wholeness. The text, as Rev. Jerry read from Genesis, is no small story to digest. Now, I admit, one of my favorite things about preaching is storytelling and kind of diving into the text and relating the text to our life, exploring the relationships we find in the scripture. And yet, this week's scripture and text was a heavy lift. No matter how I spin it or massage it or try to wrap it up for you in this feel-good, fuzzy way, 
Shame just doesn't work that way. And I should have known when Rev. Mark asked me to preach, I said yes, and then I asked, well, what's the text? And he said, Genesis. I said, oh, great. Well, what's the, what's the theme of the sermon? He said, shame. I said, great, that should be easy, right? So I wish it were a little softer today, but what I want you to know is that this message is really important. If I would have just wrapped this up for you neatly, that would have been sloppy preaching, kind of short-sighted exegesis, and frankly, a disservice to you as community. The text from Genesis, you see, is the source of much harm, many assumptions, and countless misrepresentations. Yet Genesis 2 is one of the most remarkable verses on shame in the entire Bible, describing Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when both were naked and first were not ashamed. It's important to know that nowhere in the ancient Hebrew text was shame mentioned as part of the original creation story. I want you to let that sink in, that creation in the very beginning was good and in relationship with one another and with God, as well as all the world. There was no shame, no hiding, no barriers between God and humanity, only relationship. So I wonder if you can even imagine with me for a little while that we could really be made for a world without shame to live as people with nothing to hide, with no need to ever feel embarrassed or inadequate. This seems so far off from the world we live in today. And yet from Richard Rohr to Brene Brown, theologians and social scientists of our day agree that we live in a time of primal shame, the worst that it's ever been, and we don't seem to know how to escape it. It's not surprising that most people in our society today, when asked, feel inadequate or unworthy in some form or fashion, even though we don't consciously even admit it. And among us, nearly 40% of our teens report feeling shamed related to their body image alone. Now, there are Christians who view the Genesis story of Adam and Eve and their eating from the tree of knowledge as the trailhead of original sin, though the phrase good and evil is nowhere in the ancient Hebrew text. And I even kind of imagine that there will be some preachers today who stand up and present the Lenten journey as only a one-way street, a dead end, literally, and a single narrative that humanity is bad and flawed and always has been from the very beginning. But that's not where we're headed today. And frankly, I think that only deepens the harm of shame. It's likely that when we hear life in Eden included the tree of good and evil. We think of good and evil in terms of mortality and morality, 
However, the term good in Genesis chapter 1 through 3 has nothing to do with moral goodness or ethical righteousness. Instead, good, the word good in Hebrew, is actually referring to functionality, quality, and organization. Simply put, Eden, in Eden, good means ordered. Now, Old Testament scholar Dr. Nicholas Chaser offers that rather than understanding the tree of knowledge of good and evil as the nexus of mortality and morality, the ancient Israelite reader would have seen it as the symbolic site of God's creative capacities, where humans access the ability to create order out of chaos. So having heard the text a little differently today, maybe than you ever have before, consider with me in light of the ancient Hebrew understanding that perhaps what Adam and Eve experienced would better be described as original shame, not original sin. And here's what I mean. When we first place Genesis 3 before Genesis 1, which is where God created us good, we declare that we creation from the very beginning in the image of God was good, but we kind of forget that. Now that doesn't go away or stop in Eden or on the cross or even now. God didn't guilt or shame Adam and Eve for being naked, but instead God provided for them. The shame, you see, came from within them, not from God. God stayed in relationship with them in the garden, the same way that God desires to stay in relationship with you and me here today. Dr. Brene Brown, researcher and social scientist and author, has spent the last 20 years studying shame. The impact of shame, she found, was so powerful that it could not even be directly measured because the very mention of the word shame was too close to the bone. It brought up too much pain, so people couldn't even identify it as shame. They didn't have the words for it. Her research later found and indicated that among most of us, what can be measured is the fear of disconnection. The fear that something we've done or failed to do, something about who we are or where we come from, has made us unlovable or unworthy of connection. Now, as a pastor, as a therapist, Brown's research findings and the popularity of her books and podcast is in no way surprising to me. Still, how often do I encounter and I sit with people in their questioning who ask one way another of me, am I worthy? Am I beyond love? Does God love me? People disclose things to me about their lives their feelings of shame that they've held on to for years. But often after doing so, they had a caveat that if others knew the things that they had thought, said, done, believed, that they would only be rejected. 
So what is shame exactly? The American Psychological Association defines shame as a highly unpleasant, self-conscious emotion arising from the sense that there is something dishonorable, immodest, or improper about one's own conduct and circumstances. It's also typically characterized as withdrawal, which can have a profound effect on our mental health and well-being and relationships. Research across disciplines has consistently reported that there's a relationship between shame and a host of other psychological symptoms, including depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and low self-esteem. Now, some people conflate shame and guilt, but they are not the same things. Guilt comes from a reevaluating our behavior, our actions, what we have done. Shame, on the other hand, comes from reevaluating ourselves, defining who we are. When people feel guilty, sometimes it can be a driver or a motivator for change. Guilt can prompt a person to behave differently, leading them to empathy and compassion, a step closer towards relationship and reconciliation. But when people feel shame, it has a very different effect. It leads to feelings of hopelessness, of a person becoming more isolated and withdrawn. Because you see, shame is about the perception of who we are as opposed to what we've done. Shame is a deeper and more dangerous feeling than guilt. Shame robs us of our divinity created in the image of God. Think of it this way. Guilt is that feeling that you have done something bad or harmful. Shame is the feeling that you are bad. Guilt relates to your behaviors. Shame connects to the very core of your being and identity. Author Paul Young says that shame destroys our ability to distinguish between an observation and a value statement. When something goes wrong from the lens of shame, we think it's not the problem that something went wrong. But the problem is us, fundamentally. Shame runs a vicious cycle in our head like, I am damaged, I am broken, I am unworthy, I am flawed, I am a mistake, I am not good enough, I am incompetent, I am unwanted, unloved, unappreciated, I am bad, evil, despicable, I am nothing, worthless, invisible, and empty. But where does shame come from? It's learned. It's not inherent. Perhaps it came from our parents or family of origin who needed us to be perfect in order to feel okay about themselves. Perhaps we were taught by a faith tradition or a religious community that God is ashamed of us for what we do, who we love, or how we were created. Perhaps our culture has taught us that we should be ashamed if we aren't manly enough or pretty enough or thin enough or smart enough or athletic enough or white enough. Rather than seeing Lent as 40 days of suffering and sacrifice where we simply sit in our shame, 
What if we took on looking at where our shame messages came from so that we can dismantle the mess and live into the intended good of creation, the good that God created within us that was present even in the garden that day. Now, we can feel shame for many different things. We can worry and sit and think about what our shame really means. But in the Garden of Eden, there existed no shame. Adam and Eve were comfortable with God and each other. They had nothing to hide from. God saw them, knew them, loved them as they were. And then when they did that thing that God asked them not to do, the thing that God warned them would lead to death, it's here that shame entered the world. And shame is still here, causing us to hide, much like Adam and Eve, causing us to hide from each other, from ourselves, and from God. But there is a really important distinction that needs to be made here. The shame experienced by Adam and Eve didn't come from God. Far too often, this text from Genesis is justification for God shaming people for all eternity in hell. But what if rather than hear this text as the fall of humanity, we consider it an example of stumbling into the fullness of being human, the challenge and gift of free will. In Genesis 2, Adam and Eve were oblivious to their nakedness. And in Genesis 3, find themselves hiding from God because they were ashamed. Something changed there in the text, and we don't know exactly what. But it wasn't God. The moment they ate from the fruit of the tree of knowledge, they realized their vulnerability and the struggle that is associated with the human condition. You see, Adam and Eve, just like you and me, were made in the image of God, the likeness of God. But when they felt vulnerable and exposed, the focus shifted away from God's intention for creation to their shame. So it's no wonder that shame complicates our lives. But here's the thing. If you take nothing else away from today, God doesn't leave us sitting in a place of shame. Shame, you see, is a human emotion, just like love, anger, anxiety, and fear. It's an emotion telling us that something is off or wrong. And I have yet to meet a person who has made it through life without experiencing shame. Shame is there, sure. But God made it clear that we do not have to carry shame around and eternalize it and let it define us. Shame breeds silence, doubt, and hiding. Whether it's behind fig leaves or self-imposed isolation or the walls we build to keep others out, Shame seeks to separate us from God and from one another. And so while shame is part of our humanity, Genesis reminds us that we were made for a world 
without shame, where the goodness of God can be found in each one of us and has been there from the very beginning. Now, what I love most about the Genesis story and the Lenten journey is that God doesn't give up. God calls you and me and us back to relationship, even when we're ashamed. When we know something's desperately wrong, when we feel alone, forgotten, vulnerable, or exposed. Now, unfortunately, shame messaging is used in many churches, reinforcing the harmful rhetoric that one must be perfect or pure without fault, and that anything less would be a failure. This shame culture in many churches and faith traditions has led to an entire body of research on religious trauma that is fueled by shame. Researchers and clinicians alike are beginning to see an increasing trend and correlation between religion and trauma. Psychologist and psychotherapist Marlene Whale coined the term religious trauma syndrome. And according to Winnell, religious trauma syndrome is explicitly tied to authoritarianism coupled with toxic theology. Most often found in Christian context, specifically in the doctrines of original sin and eternal damnation. In her book, Shameless Lives, Shame-Free Congregations, Karen McClintock contrasts shame with grace. McClintock is a psychologist and congregational consultant, and she has seen trends over the last 15 to 20 years that congregations are actually in decline because they have become so good at shaming people in the pews. So from sexuality to constructed gender hierarchies based on shame, shame is indeed alive and well in the church and in the world. But to be clear, shame serves no one, especially not God. Theologically, confronting and dismantling shame starts here in Genesis. It starts when we as a community of faith and a church speak out of a voice of love rather than shame. You see, the religious trauma of chronic Christian shame is the harm of being told anything else than that you are beloved, good, created in the image of God, loved into existence, and sustained by a loving creator. We don't have to look far, my friends, from pulpits to politics to communities to congregations and throughout our history as Christians in a country to see that shame is an effective tool for control, a tool for enforcing social conformity with the moral function of preserving power. So what now? What do we, what do, we do with this shame? We all have it, but what do we do with it? This is the season of Lent. I want to invite you with me to let it go. To trade beauty for ashes and shame for wholeness. Friends, you see, we don't have to wait another 37 days until Easter or even another minute to roll away the stone that shame 
bears down on our lives, that keeps us silent and isolated from one another and from God. We can turn towards love and God's love present with us, God's grace freely given, which is ours to receive or not. It's our choice. You may recall days ago when we began our Lenten journey, we heard words from the prophet Isaiah that God is making all things new. I want you to know that you can trust that. And in fact, as a church, we can even be part of that. As I mentioned, it was in the early church during the season of Lent when there was a welcome extended to all in the community who were estranged from the community to come home, to come back. And I wonder for us as St. Andrew gathered in this time and place, could we be that community? What does it look like for us to join with God in doing this new thing? Can we reach out, reach across, affirm one another that love is indeed here? Can we be a safe place to be vulnerable, for people to show up as they are and be welcomed in the fullness of who they are, leaving shame at the door? I recently finished listening to a book, Finding Me, by actress Viola Davis. Davis grew up in Central Falls, Rhode Island, where she endured rat-infested apartments, sometimes without running water or electricity, or food, she witnessed unspeakable abuse. Telling her story, Davis described the shame of poverty, the shame of violence that she witnessed and experienced, and the shame she felt for not being perfect. She went on to say that there was no one around her to give her any insight on what it meant to be black, young, a woman, dark-skinned, and then pairing that with the side effects of trauma that she lived through, Davis talked about how she internalized her struggles and the extreme cost it had been to her health and relationships. In the memoir's opening, she describes how at age eight, she was chased home from school every day by a group of boys who threw bricks at her and yelled racist comments. She said she allowed that experience to define her her words speak, this book speaks to incredible ways of the power of shame. She writes in the beginning, When you're put forth in the world, when you're born, who tells you who you are? Who tells you how you're supposed to live? Who tells you how to feel and experience joy, to find yourself, to find peace in the midst of so much chaos? If there's not an alternative voice, then who defines it? I want to leave you with this thought, that it is indeed in Genesis that God defines it clearly, unmistakably, without condition or punishment. Some of you may know the song, shame, boatloads of shame, day after day, more of the same, blame, Please lift it off. Please take it off. Please make it stop. Those words are not just lyrics to a famous Avid Brother song. It's a narrative that on some deep and real level 
we all carry. Friends, I want you to know, you, me, all of us, were made for a world without shame. Maybe we can't even imagine it, much less name it. Maybe we can't even fully take it in, but it is indeed available to us. The idea that we are not measuring up before God is something new. It was actually something man-made. It's not from God and certainly not affirmed in Genesis. It's not how God created the world from the very beginning, nor do I believe that that's how God wants the world to be. So as we enter into this season of Lent, may we do so with God's original blessing, which is God's love for us. I invite you to join with me in letting go of shame, to see where that takes you, to see where that takes us as a community of faith, and who might just show up who might be out there praying and hoping and wanting and yearning to be welcomed back to the community of faith. The sermon takeaways for today are this. Shame serves no one, especially not God. Shame tells us that we are defective. God affirms that we are good and loved as we are. And shame keeps us stuck and isolation, when in fact, we are created for relationship with God and with one another. May it be so. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.